the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance show. In this episode, I speak to philosopher Dr. Bernardo Kestrup. Bernardo is the executive director of the Essentia Foundation. He's a leading figure in the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. He has a PhD in philosophy, focused on ontology, philosophy of mind, and another PhD in computer engineering, where he focused on reconfigurable computing and artificial intelligence. As a scientist, Bernardo has worked for the European Organization of Nuclear Research and the Phillips Research Laboratories, where the Casimir effect of quantum field theory was discovered. He has published many academic papers and books, and his ideas have been featured in Scientific America, the Institute of Art and Ideas, the blog of the American Philosophical Association, and Big Think, amongst others. In this episode, we talk about what is reality, what our role is in the universe, and how to apply metaphysical idealism to our everyday lives. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. So Bernardo, here's my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? I think in this day and age, um, the most relevant understanding of what self-reliance means is that your self-worth is not depend does not depend on the judgment of other people. It has to depend on your own judgment. If if history shows anything, is that the greatest contributions to human advancement often uh, were ignored, even despised uh, in their own time, and were put down in their own time. Also, the extent of our ignorance of what is really going on and therefore of what is a worthy life and not is, is far too superficial. We only understand enough to know that our understanding is far <laughs> too superficial. So self-reliance, I think, is based on two key tenets. One is avoiding to jump to conclusions. If you think you've achieved nothing in your life and that uh, you are not worth it, think again, you don't know what's going on. You, you don't know where, where nature is trying to get, uh, and you don't know what the nature of nature is. And the other one is other people's, people's opinions, unless there is a pragmatic reason for you to care about them, like you know, avoiding being fired at work, uh, beyond those pragmatic reasons, they should, weigh, they should not weigh too much on you psychologically as far as your sense of self-worth is concerned. Look, Nietzsche was ignored in his own time completely, and he's today considered the world's most influential philosopher. Examples like that abound in history. That's very true. I mean, so many people, right, were overlooked in their time in existence on this planet as we know them, but only after they'd passed on, 
now we reflect back and we see their genius. Yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. And, and so many, the other way around as well, so many people that were considered great exponents of their time, uh, people who had an enormously worthy lives, they were famous, they were rich, fall into obscurity. At the time of Nietzsche, the main author in Germany, whose book was already in the seventh edition when Nietzsche started writing, uh, you would not know his name today. Hardly any German will know. Even the great Goethe, which has become famous, did not change the course of German intellectual history. To some extent, he was a magnificent failure. So we just don't know. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's really good points. So I was thinking about that now, I guess, from my perspective is that we all seem to be having what we feel is a personal experience, right, of ourselves. And we seem, at least from our experience, that we are individuals and it looks to be that we are all separate and that we're all running our own little experience on this planet, right? And then occasionally we bump into each other, we have a conversation or we get into a disagreement and then we often we're having our own little experience again. But that's not really what's happening, right? I mean, I think that's kind of the, the, the kind of the cusp of your work is that actually we don't really understand what reality is. Yes, and, and we, but we make assumptions based on some supposed understanding. Uh, we will not even admit to ourselves that th those are assumptions we make. But to give you an example, um, we think that all of this suffering that we go through in life is ultimately for nothing. At the end, we die anyway, and whatever we learn from this suffering is lost. Now, this is based on the assumption of metaphysical materialism, the notion that the mind is created by the particular structure of the living brain, and the insights that you have are somehow stored in that physical structure of the living brain. And when that decomposes, then your insights are gone forever from nature. And therefore, all of the suffering that led you to those insights of understanding was for nothing. Well, we have very, very little, if any, reason to think that this is the case. We have every reason to think that mind is primary and that uh, none of our insights are lost and that no suffering is for nothing in nature. That these are all contributions to nature that become woven into the very fabric of reality whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not, whether you believe it or not. So I hear you, you've mentioned again, in, in just as in that short little um, explanation there, you use the word nature a lot. What do you mean by nature? Because I guess, I think that needs to be unpacked, right? Because not, not, it's not self-evident. I mean, what do we mean by nature? Are we talking about us, our nature as human beings? Uh, are we talking about nature as in Gaia, the planet that we're on? Are we talking about nature as in the universe? What, what nature are we, are we discussing here? Nature, nature as in the universe, nature as the sum total of the things that are the case, the sum total of the facts of reality. That's what I mean by it. Yeah, so that, that's important. So how do I mean, you hinted to it, but how do I factor into, into nature? How do I exist within that? Because as I noted earlier, it does seem to be that I'm an individual and that I have an individual experience and it's separate to everyone else. But there is, you know, as I listen to different philosophers talking, there is a claim that we are all deeply connected at the fundamental level, that there is no separation, but that's not the experience that I have. So 
what actually is going on here. We have every reason to believe that uh, we are not ultimately separate from physics. If the universe really starts in a big bang, then everything that exists is fundamentally uh, entangled, as one would say. And we have every reason to think of an entangled system as a unified whole and not a disconnected lump of parts. That's not what's going on. From philosophy, we have every reason to believe that uh, nature is a form of mind, a form of mentation, which appears to us when we observe it as the so-called physical world, and that our minds are part of that. I mean, whatever we are, we are part of nature. We are an intrinsic part of nature. We are something nature is doing, not something separate from nature in, in its own being. That, that, that's certainly not the case. The atoms in our bodies are constantly flowing in and out of our bodies. The atoms of the food we eat constitute our bodies and the atoms of what we excrete, the, the, the dead skin cells we shed, our urine, um, every, our, all of our secretions, that's going away. So the, not a single atom in your body stays put for over a few years. Um, so we are a local pattern of doing in nature. And if nature is a mind, which we have every reason to think it is, then we are a sort of dissociated mental complex in the mind of nature that appears to be separate because it's dissociated, uh, but which is certainly not fundamentally separate at all. What is the purpose then of being dissociated? Why that choice amongst any other choice that there could be? I mean, I, I, the analogy that I think to myself is like, I'm not sure if you're a Star Trek fan. But, you know, in, this, in Star Trek, there's this group of beings called the Borg, and they are all connected as one, right? Why not that versus this experience that it does seem that we're all having an individual experience and we all seem to be separate from each other, even though in reality, that's not the case? Why that choice? Why choose that, that direction? Why would the universe decide on that? I don't think it's a choice. I don't think it's a decision in the sense that we make choices and decisions deliberately. I think, uh, you know, the, the mental function or the mental capacity that you need to make deliberate choices is technically called uh, metacognition. So you have not only to experience, but you have to know that you're experiencing. You need to be able to evaluate your own content of experience in order to make a deliberate choice on a course of action. And uh, that, I think, is something that has evolved in nature in the course of evolution, in the evolution of a life on planet Earth. It's the only place, as far as we know, where this has taken place. So when I say that nature is a mind, I don't mean that it is a human-like mind capable of making deliberate choices or to, to construct plans and, and to be metacognizant of its own wishes, where it wants to go, where it plans to be. Um, I think the mind of nature is spontaneous. It's, um, it's instinctive. It does what it does because it is what it is. Uh, and therefore, it wants to do what it does. The, the wanting and the needing are the same thing at that level. If you don't have the ability to, you know, to introspect and metacognize and deliberate, think things through uh, self-reflectively, the ability to reflect, if that's not there, then the want is the need. And the need is a direct consequence of what nature is. So that dissociation has happened in nature it's for the same reason that black holes happen in nature, that quasars happen, that volcanoes erupt, that tidal waves happen after earthquakes. It's one of the things that nature spontaneously does because it is 
what it happens to be. Having said that, I do think that there is a subtle telos, a subtle direction in the way things are going, because it appears that the whole of nature is pushing towards the, the, the development of the ability to reflect, which we have. And, and that has been done at in incredibly high cost in terms of total suffering, total time, total energy. Um, the, our presence on this planet risks the entire ecosystem of the planet. And yet it, it seems that nature went in this direction. We broke away from instinct at great risk for the total, for the totality of this planet. Um, and, and there is no turning back. We keep on going in that direction. So I think there is a subtle instinctual or instinctive tendency towards the evolution of self-reflection uh, in nature. So we are the self-reflective eyes of nature. We are the only, uh, insofar as we know, the only part of nature capable of regarding itself and passing value judgments such as, is this fine or is this not fine? Should we change what's going on and make a plan and deliberate and go in a premeditated, premeditated direction? Short of us and maybe some other higher mammals like pachyderms and cetaceans, I don't think this is in the fabric of nature at the bottom level. I think the bottom level is pretty instinctive and spontaneous and it does what it does because it's one of the potentialities of nature and it's bound to happen at some point. That's why dissociation happened. So is there a purpose, though? I mean, is there a purpose to us being here? Because as you said, you know, it came at high costs. And if I just kind of reflect just generally, I mean, if we think about ecosystems, everything in an ecosystem needs to be there in order for an ecosystem to flourish. And, you know, I'm just thinking of an example, like in Yellowstone uh, National Park in the United States, there was a time when they removed all the wolves and then there was a knockoff effect at how it basically destroyed that ecosystem. And then there was a realization we had to bring the wolves back. And once they did, the ecosystem came back online and became healthy again. What I find fascinating about that, though, is it seems like everything has a reason for being here on the planet except us because if we disappear tomorrow if you the human race disappeared tomorrow morning off this planet i don't think the planet would miss us at all in fact everything all the destruction that we've created will be fixed over time so what is the purpose like why are we here do you think there's is there a reason i mean why why do we why is the universe setting us in this path where we are reflecting we have this reflective cap capacity is the universe trying to know itself? I mean, what is the reason for us to be here? I think the first line of, to answer this question is what I said just before. Um, you are thinking in terms of there having to be a premeditated reason for everything, even in the wolves in Yellowstone. The wolves were indispensable for the ecosystem of Yellowstone because that ecosystem evolved with the wolves. It's not that somebody decided that there had to be wolves there. If wolves hadn't been there, a different ecosystem would have evolved in which everything that is or isn't in that ecosystem would play a role in it because it evolved that way, not because there was a you know, premeditated plan. So I, I don't think life or dissociation in the mind of nature um, is the result of a premeditated plan that the mind of the universe planned for us to be here and play a certain role. I think we happened for the same reason that volcanoes erupt and supernovae explode. <laughs> exactly the same thing. Now, having said that, I think 
there are, and I can't defend this very strongly, uh, objectively, it's more of an intuition based on observation than, than a, an implication of what I observe. Um, there seems to be a tremendous push towards self-reflective life. And then you might ask, why nature, why does nature seem to like it? So let's think in terms of what nature likes and what nature doesn't like, as opposed to what nature planned and what nature didn't plan, because I don't think it planned anything. But since something in, in, of the kind of self-reflective life eventually arose, because nature is just spontaneously manifesting what it is, because it is what it is, um, I think there was a instinctive sense that, uh, hey, this is welcome. Because it seems, if, if you think about it a little bit anthropomorphically, which is always a fallacy, but it's the only thing we have in this case, um, think of a delirium. A delirium is when you lose your ability to reflect. Um, you just experience things, but you, you are not able to rationally order your experiences in a certain narrative line that makes sense. That's what we call a delirium. Um, it's not comfortable if you have ever had a delirium because of high fever, illness, or something else, or, or a psychedelic drug. You know it's not welcome. Um, it feels very bad. And returning to a inner narrative that tells you, oh, this is why this is happening. Uh, this is what I expect to happen next. This is how long it probably will last. This is what I am, and that's my role in the whole of what's going on. This kind of inner narrative making, which is dependent on the ability to reflect, um, is, is a relief uh, to a delirious mind. Um, and I think that's why nature seems to like reflection. It, uh, it's, it's an ability that has evolved over time and allows nature to order parts of itself and develop a narrative for itself about what it is and what it is doing. It gives it a, a sense of stability and control. So, um, I, I, so I rather think of it not as a deliberate purpose, but as a liking that took root once it happened for the first time. So the questions I'm asking you is like when I thought about this interview and what, as I noted in the beginning, before we came on the, the call, I'd been watching a lot of your talks and I kept thinking to myself, what would the average person ask, right? If they'd watch some of your talks, that's kind of where my questions are coming from. Like what would be the kind of the, the average person listening to you talk who hasn't gone through that, that academic experience with gone through the thought experiments and put all the effort that you have into, into this topic. Like what kind of questions would that ask? And it's kind of a funny story here because I was telling my partner that I was going to be chatting to you today. And I said, oh, I'm going to be speaking to Bernardo. And she said, Oh, that guy that makes my head hurt <laughs> because I've like made her sit down. And I'm like, Hey, have a listen to this. What do you think? She's like, Oh my God, my head's going to explode. You know? So I think that's kind of the, the typical um, and natural kind of, uh, you know, first ex experience of you when people are listening to what you're talking about. So that hence, hence my questions, I guess the thing is, is that what you're saying and I, and I get it, but our experiences is, is, is says differently. And, and I guess that's where the, this kind of um, tension comes in because it does seem to me that having a purpose as a human being, defining a purpose is very important to us. I mean, I've seen, you know, oftentimes that people who don't seem to have a purpose in life, 
seem to derail themselves and, you know, fall off the bandwagon, so to speak, and end up getting themselves into all kinds of, of trouble. And one of the things that kind of directs them back into a sense of health and wellness is having that purpose. But then you're saying that, well, I don't think the universe has a specific purpose. So it seems like there's kind of this tension going on here between how we perceive reality and how reality is kind of banging back at us, right? Or echoing back at us, right? Is that, is that kind of like an accurate assumption or at least am I on the right track? I don't think so. Okay. Um, I, I don't think we don't have a purpose. That's not what I meant to mm. say. What I said is, I don't think there is a premeditated goal or a plan, but you can have a purpose that is instinctive, a purpose that is felt and not thought through. So from that perspective, nature probably does have a purpose and it is, it is the development of self-reflection mm. at larger and larger and larger scales because it brings peace. Uh, to the instinctive mind behind the whole of existence, I think, I suspect. So uh, the notion of purpose and meaning is entirely 100% compatible with an absence of original plan okay, and reflection. I get it. So what I'm disputing is premeditation, reflection, explicit and premeditated planning, not purpose. That makes sense. That makes sense to me because if it was planned, then we wouldn't, I guess, have the sense of individuality, right? Because everybody seems to be different to each other. And if everything was predefined, if it had a, an original purpose, if that was the purpose, then everybody would be the same. You know, then back to my Star Trek analogy where we talk about we are the Borg, we are one is the, the kind of this, the statement there, right? Well, the, the main thing is that when it comes to this particular purpose, the ability to reflect, mm. To plan for this presupposes that the purpose has already happened because you need reflection to plan. Mm. So you cannot plan to be able to reflect. It's an internal contradiction because to be able to plan, you, re you really are already, you, you need already the, the ability to reflect. It, it's entailed and presupposed in premeditation, in planning. Um, if the goal is reflection, then we are getting there uh, through feeling, through a form of instinct and spontaneous development of nature, not through a primordial plan that would already presuppose the existence of reflection all of those years ago or all of gazillions of years ago. Look, if that had been the case, then we, are, we would be like uh, students in a school. The teacher already has all the answers and we are, putting, we are put through shit just to arrive at the answers that the teacher already has. So why do we suffer? Somebody already knows. Something in the universe already knows. So what is this bloodbath all about? What is this shit show all about? It can only come from the mind of a reflective, sadistic <laughs> divinity. Um, um, I don't think that's, that's the right metaphor. The metaphor is we are a leading edge research laboratory. We do not have the answers. Nobody has the answers. We are finding the answers out. And that's why suffering is worthwhile because it's, it's part of the deal. Ultimately, you try to get to the answers and to suffer your way there is part of it. There is no shortcut. You have to go through it. And it is not for nothing because at the end, you get an answer that nothing nature had before. Now the suffering is meaningful. Now there is a true purpose to life and not an artificial school-like purpose that is sadistic in nature. So this is, I mean, I don't know how, how you, your feeling is about 
you know, if we think about just the universe in of itself and just the many worlds that are out there and there is guaranteed, I'm sure, likely going to be other entities out there, maybe similar or not similar to us. But would you think that in that respect that they also at probably at some stage into that kind of reflective mode that the universe is moving towards reflection? It's not just something that only happens on this planet. It probably is throughout the universe. It's a difficult question to answer. I think there are very good reasons to think that there are other physical beings in the sense that we use the word physical colloquially. There are other physical beings somewhere out there because the universe is so inconceivably vast that it seems preposterous to think that they are not there. At the same time, our very conception of a vast universe is our conception. It's how we conceptualize things. So which always plants a seed of doubt. You know, we are extracting a conclusion from our conception, a conclusion about the existence of things that are not us based on our conception of what's going on. Now, that, that can potentially go wrong. So I'm agnostic about the existence of, you know, other colloquially physical uh, uh, ETs uh, somewhere in the universe. I think I hold my cards to my chest yet. But um, now we have basically, you know, there is no doubt anymore um, about the existence of UAPs or unidentified aerial phenomena. Um, what are they? Are they just biological ETs from the Pleiades or some other star system? I don't think so. I don't think so, because their behavior, behavior seems to violate not only the laws of physics we understand, but the laws of logic which is an even more fun foundational layer of our conception of reality. They move in illogical ways. They behave in illogical ways. I think what that shows is there is more to the great mind of nature than what we call the physical universe. And these are the things that are not part of the physical universe that do not present themselves in the way we colloquially refer to as physical entities. Um, can protrude into, into our backyard and, and lead to tremendous confusion. So yeah, there may be other universal dreams in the mind of nature that operate by completely different rules, not only rules of, of behavior, but even different cognitive rules. The rules of logic are different. So I think at this point, what might be helpful is I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this from my audience, because we have such a wide variety of topics that we cover, and it's always about this idea around self-reliance, are going to be new to your work. Now, of course, they can go out there. Like I said, I've watched so many of your talks. There's a, you've done a lot of work in this area. But if you had to kind of give us a Cliff Notes version of your thesis, kind of simplified as I know sometimes it's not easy to do that, but make it as simple for somebody to understand what would that be? Because I think now's a good time to talk about it because everything we've talked up until now, it'll then make sense. Why are you saying what you're saying? I think what we colloquially call the physical universe does not have standalone existence. Uh, it is not the thing in itself. It's an appearance, a representation of a deeper layer of, layer of reality. If that deeper layer, deeper layer is not doing anything, then there is no physical universe because the physical universe depends on that deeper layer to exist, it does not have standalone existence. And I think that deeper layer of reality is mentation. It's mental processes of the same kind that we have, although not the same mental processes we have. 
just stuff of the same ontic kind, as we say technically, the same ontic category. So transpersonal thoughts and feelings, if you will, that are not human-like, but are felt experiences uh, of nature. And as such, I do grant that uh, there is an objective universe out there with standalone existence, um, which presents itself to us uh, in the form we, we colloquially call matter or, or physical stuff. Um, and that, but that universe is mental, although it's not my mentation, it's not your mentation, it's not made of your thoughts or my thoughts, it's made of transpersonal thoughts that are really out there and which do not care whether we believe them, whether we like them, it, they will not change just because we, we wish them to be different. So they are objective in that sense, but they are mental in essence. And we are dissociated mental complexes in this broad mind of nature. That's what life is. Life is the appearance of a dissociative process in the mind of nature. And death, therefore, is the end of that dissociation. So death is not the end of our conscious inner life. Death is akin to waking up from the dream and realizing that you were not only your dream character, you were the mind that was doing the rest of the dream as well. Everything else around the dream character. Um, death is the end of the dissociation and enrichment of conscious inner life. So in a, a lot of your talks, you had this uh, kind of use this analogy of a pilot, right? Flying a plane, the instruments, and then, you know, what's out there in the instruments. Maybe can you, can you talk us through that? Because I think that's very helpful in also kind of just highlighting and articulating this further. We tend to naively think that uh, our perception is akin to sort of a transparent window into the world. You know, transparent glass window that we see the world as it actually is and even under metaphysical physicalism or materialism whatever you want to call it the mainstream worldview in our culture uh, it's presupposed that the forms of the world as it is in itself corresponds to the forms of what appears on the screen of perception so if i look at a cylinder then uh, then I, I construe that there is something with the same shape and form of a cylinder really out there in the world mm -hmm. And that my brain just coats it with colors and the colors don't exist up there, but the shape of the cylinder does. There is something geometrically equivalent to a cylinder out there. Uh, we know now that this is a very naive view of what's going on. Um, perception is not a transparent window that allows us to see the world as it is. If it were one, we would die. And technically the reason is we would not be able to put an upper bound on the dispersion of our inner states because our inner perceptual states would mirror the world and we cannot put a bound on what the world is. Mm. So if we were to just mirror the states of the world inside, we would basically dissolve into hot soup. Uh, we would not be able to bind, uh, bound our internal entropy. And there is a very elaborate technical argument behind this. Another reason is that uh, it wouldn't be useful for our survival to see the world as it actually is. For the same reason that it's not useful for you to see the files in your computer hard disk for what they actually are. Millions of open or closed electronic switches. Uh, uh, well, not in your hard disk, in your SSD, um, your solid state drive. Uh, it's useless to see your files for what they are. It's much more conduct conducive to survival and efficiency if you see just a metaphor that represents the file, namely a little rectangle on your desktop uh, computer. So uh, uh, we know that the world is not the way it presents itself on the screen of perception. 
that the world is not made of objects uh, uh, occupying space-time positions with certain shapes. We, we know that that cannot be the case. The physical world is not what the actual world is. It is a dashboard representation thereof, in the same sense that if you're a pilot flying an airplane, you can fly by instruments. You don't need the transparent windshield to fly your plane safely. You can fly by instruments. And what are instruments? Well, there are sensors outside the airplane collecting information about the real world, measuring the real world, and the results of those measurements are displayed on the dials on a dashboard. Now, a pilot understands this. He takes the dashboard seriously and he can land safely. Um, but the mistake we make is that we think the dashboard is the world. Because we were born inside an airplane without windows, all we have is the dashboard. And the dashboard is something nature has evolved in us to be effective. The dashboard is very effective. We should take it very seriously. But then we think, well, since that's all I have in terms of information about the world, then the dashboard is the world. Now, a kid born on an airplane without windows would naturally extract that conclusion. All the kid ever had was that dashboard. He has lived safely by having only the dashboard. He thinks the dashboard is the world. That's the mistake we make when we say that the world is physical or material. Uh, we are basically saying the world is the dashboard. No, it's not. The world is what is measured in order to produce the representations displayed on the dials. That's what physicality is. It's the dials on the dashboard. The real world is a layer deeper, is what is below physicality, underlying physicality, and by the grace of which physicality exists once we observe that deeper layer of reality or take a measurement of it. I think that's very helpful. My next question is, why does any of this actually matter? in the sense of how does this inform your life, Bernardo? I mean, how do you use this that you've been talking about to live the life that you feel you want to live and flourish within? It changes everything. It changes our sense of self, our sense of purpose and meaning, our way to relate to each other. It changes our expectations about uh, what happens after we die. It changes everything. So let give you some quick clarifications. If the physical world is just a superficial appearance of something deeper, then the world around you right now is reinvested with a dimension of depth. And even meaning in the literal sense, the physical world is now the thing in itself. It points at something deeper behind it. It's a symbol. It's a suggestion about the real reality that is behind, somewhere behind the physical world. In the same sense that the real sky is somewhere behind the dashboard. And the dashboard is just giving you hints and suggestions. So there is every reason now for us to see and experience the world around us in the same way that you try to decipher an ancient book. It has a meaning. It's pointing at something below and behind itself. And life is about figuring that out, deciphering it. And the difference between the symbol and the thing in itself is as vast as the symbol between some dials, some dials indicating on the dashboard of an airplane that there is a storm ahead and actually seeing the clouds and the lightning and, and, the, and the hail and the rain, you know, the richness of what lies behind the, the dashboard is unfathomable. Uh, we didn't evolve to even conceive of it, but it is there. It's what's surrounding us. We are immersed in it at all times. Another thing that changes is um, if we are dissociated complexes 
the mental complexes in the mind of nature. And that's what life is. Life is the appearance of these dissociated processes on the dashboard of perception. Then the end of life is the end of the dissociation. So you can expect not the end of your conscious inner life, but a vast incomprehensible enrichment of your conscious inner life uh, when you die. Um, other people now are not fundamentally separate from you. They are like dissociated personalities uh, of a mind that is actually you. They are all you. <laughs> they are all parts of the real you. Uh, it invests our relationship with society with a, a dimension of empathy uh, and compassion that, uh, that couldn't be sustained before. Um, I could go on and on. Well, go on. I mean, I think, see, because like what you're saying right now is super helpful, right? Because I think one of the things is that when people listen to what you've been talking about or any of the guests that I've had, the one thing they want to know is, okay, you've talked about your position, but how does it show up in your own life? Why is it important? How do I embody those experiences? How do I make my life better? And they can do that through just the two things that you just noted now, I think are super valuable by having that change of perspective, as you noted, changes everything, how we deal with other people, you know, how we view ourselves within the experience that we're having. So I think that's, that's, that's super powerful. So if you have more, I think we should, we should maybe go down that, that hole, that rabbit hole. Under this worldview, the body is what our own mental processes look like when, this, when measured and displayed on the dashboard we call perception, including the mental processes that we are not capable of introspecting into, that are beyond the reach of introspection, because they are too deeply internalized and repressed and dissociated and forgotten, whatever. But they are still there. They are in your mind but you cannot have metacognitive access to them. In other words, you cannot tell yourself, oh, I am experiencing that. You think you're not experiencing that, but you are experiencing that at a very deep layer of your mind. And the body is what all of that looks like. Therefore, a healthy body is a, it's what the dials on the dashboard indicate when your inner mental life is healthy. And uh, disease is what happens when your inner mental life is not healthy. And, and that's not in addition to physical health. What I'm saying is that this is what physical health is. Physical health is a dashboard representation of deeply internalized mental health. And if you are aware of this, then for your health care, you have now not only drugs and surgery, you also have the ability to directly impact your health through psychological integration, through psychological practice, through talk therapy, through trying to become a mature, well-integrated human being. Uh, maturity comes back to the picture in this profoundly adolescent culture in which we live, in which to be a child is elevated to the level of righteous pride. Now, when we say, oh, uh, I have no evil in me, only they have evil. That's a child speaking. It's somebody who did not mature enough, did not integrate his or her own mental life enough to realize that the seeds of evil are in all of us, um, that we all have that in us, in potentiality. So no, that comes back. Um, emotions now are not just side effects of the evolutionary advantage of certain behaviors. Uh, emotions are now the thing in themselves. They are to be taken seriously. 
they're not to be repressed and neglected as just a machine that is misfiring, an engine that is misfiring, which is our view of emotions today, which give people license to not mature, to not take their emotions seriously, to not integrate uh, their emotions in, in the wholeness of, of our personality, but to get rid of them through pills and distraction and banality. Um, that, that all changes. Now, it's not all good news, Rodney to, be, Rodney, to be honest with you. I mean, meaning comes back, mystery comes back, and these are the most important things. However, and now, uh, some, the greatest fear of humankind, which materialism got rid of in the mid-19th century, it's back on the table, which is, what will I experience after I am dead? That has been historically the one greatest fear of mankind throughout history. In Christian terms, am I going to go to heaven or am I going to go to hell? Um, uh, this not only was the greatest fear of humankind, it, it was the thing that has been used to control human behavior for millennia. Um, and in the mid-19th century, metaphysical materialism got rid of it. That, that's the greatest payoff of materialism. Uh, materialism is a psychological move. It's not a you know a clear-headed logical and empirical move because there is nothing in logic and empiricism that uh, that substantiates materialism at all. Um, it's purely a psychological move. Now the bad news is okay. That one is back on the table. <laughs> what is your experiential state after you die? How will that feel? Yeah, that was very helpful. One of the things I wanted to just, you know, because we're coming near to the end and I wanted to explore this because it was just one question that come up, came up for me watching some of your talks. You mentioned altars. Maybe you can just explain what do you mean by that and how that you've kind of hinted to that, but how that relates to your, your thesis. I think we are altars of the mind of nature in a way analogous to how a person suffering from what used to be called uh, multiple personality disorder has multiple alter personalities. An alter is a dissociated mental complex that has its own seemingly separate center of awareness and has its own memories and personality dispositions, preferences, way of thinking, values. Um, that in humans, that happens as a defense mechanism. When you suffer tremendous trauma and you cannot quote, uh, quote but you cannot cope with uh, integrating all aspects of that traumatic experience because it's just too pungent. Um, what the mind will naturally do to protect itself is to split its awareness into multiple separate centers of awareness. And each of those separate centers of awareness has a portion of those memories. And there is no overall center of awareness that integrates it all and, and, and becomes aware of the potency of the trauma and the complete potency of the trauma so it's a defense mechanism and um, it used to be thought until i don't know 20 odd years ago some people thought that it was a fake that people that were dissociated to this extent i mean we all get dissociated when you're dreaming you're dissociated you don't identify with the parts of your mind that are generating the rest of the dream you think you're only the dream avatar but it's in fact you doing the whole thing, including the other people, the cars, the buildings, the trees around you. So that's a, a mild form of dissociation. Not being able to remember something is a mild form of dissociation. We are always getting dissociated all the time. But uh, multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder, which is the modern name, the, the DID, 
DID is an extreme form of that thing we are all acquainted with. And there is good reason now, not good reason, now it's proven that it really happens. We can diagnose it with functional MRI uh, brain scanners. We can diagnose it with EEG. It has been shown that uh, if one of your alter personalities, if you're a patient of DID, claims to be blind, um, at least in some cases, if you hook that person up to uh, an EEG uh, cap and you measure brain activity in the visual cortex at the back of the brain, there is no visual, uh, there's no activity in the visual cortex for as long as an alter, a blind alter is in control, even though the person's eyes are open. And when the host personality is back in control, the normal brain activity returns to the visual cortex. So dissociation is now not only proven to exist, it's proven to be literally blinding. It can blind you to the world that is right in front of your open eyes. So of course, it can obfuscate your own memories from you. It can obfuscate parts of your own personality from you and seemingly fragment your mind. And I think something akin to that is what's happening at a universal scale. And we are the altars. We are the altars of the dreamy mind of nature. So when I heard you say that originally, it's just like a thought that popped into my head. Because I was thinking, you know, Bernardo's talking about altars. We're talking about DID and the altars. And as you noted, right, it, the, the reason the altars exist is a way to protect the person from their trauma. So then this thought popped in my head as like, well, is the universal mind suffering from some kind of trauma? <laughs> I don't think so. Um... Look, um, DID provides an instance. DID is a human condition. It provides an instance of something in nature that does what we need it to do to account for what's happening. In other words, I don't need to argue theoretically about dissociation happening in nature. I can point at it and say it does happen. It's not a matter of theory. It's a matter of empirical evidence. We know nature, something in nature does that. Now, DID is a human pathology because for us, it's maladaptive. It makes it harder for us to have an, a proper safe uh, life. Um, but that's because we evolved in a particular planetary ecosystem called the Earth. So for us, that potentiality of nature, that thing that can happen in mind, namely dissociation, for us, in an extreme form, it's maladaptive. But we are part of the Earth ecosystem. The mind of nature is not in an ecosystem. It's not trying to survive. So for it, dissociation is just one of the things that happen in it because it is what it is. It's not a pathology. It's not maladaptive because it's not competing in, a, in an ecosystem. Uh, again, dissociation at that level is you should look at you should regard it as just as you regard a volcanic eruption or a supernovae a supernova exploding it's one of the things that just happen in nature because nature happens to be what it is and not something else it's not a pathology at that level now that 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 answer i just obviously that's there was a kind of a quirky little thought i had but as we come to the end Bernardo, what words of wisdom would you want to leave the listener with we have no idea what is really going on. So to think of life as something banal and meaningless is utterly nonsensical. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.